you have a Bible with you, let me invite you to turn with me to Acts chapter 21. Acts 21, this morning we'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 as we're continuing our study through the book of Acts. And the title for this morning's sermon is, Ready to be imprisoned and to die. Ready to be imprisoned and to die. We're in Acts chapter 21. We'll be looking at verses 1 through 16 together this morning. Luke writes this. He says, And when we had parted from them, we set sail. We came by a straight course to Kos, and the next day to Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come inside of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. And having sought out the disciples, we stayed there for seven days. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. When our days there were ended, we departed and went on our journey, and they all, with wives and children, accompanied us until we were outside the city, and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship, and they returned home. When we had finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus, and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea, and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist, who was one of the seven, and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea, and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him into the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him to not go up to Jerusalem. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart? For I am ready not only to be imprisoned, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem. And some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us to the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for the opportunity to sing songs of worship and adoration to the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. May his glory be evident for us all to see today. And thank you for the testimony of Paul here at the end of his third missionary journey that would not be deterred from going to Jerusalem to do the work that you called him to do, to preach the gospel, to point others to Christ, and to be willing to offer his life even as a sacrifice in a sense of that he's willing to be imprisoned and even to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. Be exalted in our hearts as we consider this passage and how it relates in its truths to us even today. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. On April the 14th, 1521, Martin Luther was on his way to the Diet of Worms. The emperor had forbidden the sale of the reformer's books and ordered them to be seized. Luther's life was in the balance. His devoted friend and confidant, 
George Spalatin had sent word through a special messenger not to come to Worms unless he suffer the same fate as John Huss, who was burned at the stake some 100 years earlier. Luther comforted his fearful friends, saying, though Huss was burned, the truth was not burned, and Christ still lives. Then he sent Spalatin the now famous message, I shall go to Worms, though there are as many devils as tiles on the roofs. On April 16th, Luther did indeed enter Worms in a Saxon two-wheeled cart preceded by an imperial herald. Although it was the dinner hour, there were over 2,000 people present to observe his entrance. On the following day, at four o'clock, Luther stood before the authorities of the Roman Catholic Church who held high offices in various nations across Europe. Most men of God would have been intimidated. There was a fiery exchange between the Archbishop of Trier, Johann Eck, and Martin Luther, the Augustinian monk. Luther, overwhelmed by the immensity of the situation and of what was all at stake, requested a night for prayer and consideration. And what Luther prayed that night in his jail cell was recorded in his journal. Here was his prayer. How frail and sensitive is the flesh of men, and the devil so powerful and active through his apostles and the wise of the world. O thou my God, my God, help me against the reason and wisdom of all the world. Do this. Thou must do it. Thou alone, for this cause is not mine, but thine. For myself, I have no business here with these great lords of the world. Indeed, I too desire to enjoy days of peace and quiet and to be undisturbed. But thine, O Lord, is the cause, and it is righteous and of eternal importance. Stand by me, thou faithful, eternal God. I rely on no man." O God, stand by me in the name of thy dear Son, Jesus Christ, who shall be my protector and defender, yea, my mighty fortress, through the might and the strengthening of the Holy Spirit. On April the 18th, a larger hall was chosen, but was so crowded that scarcely any, save the emperor, could sit down. Finally came the famous dialogue between Eck and Luther. I ask you, Martin, Answer candidly and without horns, do you or do you not repudiate your books and the errors which they contain? Luther replied, since your majesty and your lordships desire a simple reply, I will answer without horns and without teeth. Unless I am convicted by scripture and plain reason, I do not accept the authority of popes and councils, for they have often contradicted each other. My conscience is captive to the word of God. I cannot and I will not recant anything, for to go against conscience is neither right nor safe. God help me, amen. Well, that was one of the greatest moments in the modern history of the world. How did Martin Luther come to such heroics, standing alone before the world, risking his life for the sake of God's truth? Well, Martin Luther knew the scriptures, and he knew that it was God's will for him to stand firm and not to shirk his God-given responsibility. 
He knew that the just shall live by faith. He knew that it was God's will for him to go to worms and to declare the truth to the world regardless of the consequences. Furthermore, Luther did God's will, which is what set him apart from any other ordinary man. He not only knew the right thing to do, he did it. And as we'll see in our text this morning, the apostle too was a man who knew and who did God's will, which in this instance was to go to Jerusalem and to minister to the church. He was willing to do this, though such service would bring him into bonds and to into afflictions. And in doing this, I believe that Paul is a great example for Christian believers today. And some of us this morning may be wrestling with a crucial or a thorny decision. We may wonder if it is God's will for us to do this or to do that. And we may even think that we know what God's will is, but we're not sure if we really have the strength to follow through with it. And so the story of Paul's struggle offers us some helpful insights in how to not be derailed in following God's direction in our lives. Paul had just experienced a tearful farewell with the Ephesian elders, tearful indeed because tough times lay ahead for this apostle. And according to the end of chapter 20, verse 38, the elders were sorrowful most of all because of the word that he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And so the Holy Spirit had told Paul that imprisonment and inflictions were awaiting him in Jerusalem. It was certainly a heart-wrenching goodbye. And yet Paul did not proceed toward difficulty uh, with his date with destiny reluctantly. On the contrary, he sprinted to meet it. And like Luther, he gave God's plan for him higher priority than anything or anyone else. Such joyful abandon to do the divine will of God would go neither unchallenged or unrewarded. This morning, I want us to look at three headings that will encourage us to do the same, to follow God's calling, to follow his plan, to follow with courage and conviction no matter the circumstances. We'll see number one, courage to keep going, verses one through six. Number two, courage to be imprisoned, to die, to be imprisoned and to die. And then number three, we're gonna look at some application, some courage that apply these lessons that we're gonna learn together this morning. Let's look at the first heading, courage to keep going. Your first blank, if you are taking notes this morning, says that Paul sailed from Miletus to Tyre. He sailed from Miletus to Tyre. So we'll do a little bit of geography here. Verses one through three, we read that, and when he had parted from them and set sail, we came by a straight course to Kos, and on the next day, Rhodes, and from there to Patera. And having found a ship crossing to Phoenicia, we went aboard and set sail. And when we had come in sight of Cyprus, leaving it on the left, we sailed to Syria and landed at Tyre, for there the ship was to unload its cargo. Well, verse one starts off saying, and we had parted from them. As we just read about the emotional farewell that Paul had with the Ephesian elders who would never see his face again. And the term here, when it says, and he, when we had parted from them, that word parted literally means to tear away. It, it means to be torn apart. It shows the trauma of that, of that separation. And so great was the Ephesians elders' love for Paul that they had to literally pull themselves out of that embrace. You know, it would be like a soldier 
hugging and kissing his fiance right before he goes to war, and they literally have to pull them apart because of that bond that had been joined, uh, that had been joining them together. They had to tear Paul from their grasp and depart with him uh, from their from the sorrowful friends. He had to 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 move forward, and Paul and his companions now are setting sail from Miletus, where they had been there with the Ephesian elders, and they resume their journey towards Jerusalem. And so leaving Miletus, they ran a straight course, the verse says here, to Kos, C-O-S, which is the capital city of the island that bears the same name. And then from there, they went to Rhodes, where they no doubt saw the famed Colossus of Rhodes, which is a giant statue of the sun god Helios, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. And then from Rhodes, they would have rounded the southwestern corner of Asia Minor and stopping at Patera. Each one of those ports represents one day's voyage. Uh, the ship sailed during the day when the day breeze from the sea would push the boat along the shore and then it would anchor at port each night. And while in Patera, Paul decided to board a much larger ship that would then be able to sail right across the heart of the Mediterranean Sea rather than continuing to hug the coast in the smaller vessel. This more substantial ship had been similar probably to the size that's mentioned later in Acts of the ship that carried Paul to Rome carrying no less than 276 people. And so as they were crossing the Mediterranean, they passed to the south of Cyprus, leaving it to the left side of the boat as they're heading east, again across the Mediterranean. And the ship did not anchor at Cyprus, but continued sailing to Syria and eventually landed at Tyre. The crossing from Patera to Tyre on the east coast of the Mediterranean normally took about five days. Paul and his party would have then had about seven days to wait while the cargo from this larger ship would have been unloaded there at Tyre. And so this simple recounting of Paul's journeys demonstrates his drive and his commitment to fulfill the priority of going to Jerusalem. He had an objective and he wanted to encourage the saints there as well as to meet the needs of the poor with a collection that he had taken up from the younger church plants. This was intended to encourage the saints in Jerusalem as well as to unify the church to care for one another's needs. And so we definitely see here the strength of Paul's courage and his devotion to obey what he knew to be divine priority. And in all of this, we see certainly courage and conviction. I mean, to do this kind of travel in the ancient world, carrying a large purse of offerings and donations to help out the saints in Jerusalem would have been far from an easy task. And so Paul had incredible courage. He had conviction. And you know, conviction presumes a clear purpose. And that's the way we ought to live all of life. In the Old Testament, Joshua and Caleb were convinced that God had given Israel the land of Canaan. Deborah was convinced that God would give victory to Israel. David was convinced that God would give victory over Goliath and preserve Israel from the Philistines. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego were convinced that the true God was to be worshiped instead of idols. And in the same way, Paul was convinced that as he moved and as he was seeking to minister out God's plan, God's purpose, that he would do it all in God's power. And so he had that unshakable conviction and he had indomitable courage. 
Well, now that we've reviewed just a little bit, verses one through three, the courage to keep pushing towards Jerusalem, look at your next blank where we're now told in verse four that Paul was told not to go to Jerusalem. He was told not to go to Jerusalem. Verse four, and after having sought out the disciples, we stayed there, this is Tyre, for seven days. Remember, they're unloading the ship's cargo. And through the Spirit, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. And so while Paul was there for seven days, he sought out the disciples who lived in that area. So we gotta remember Paul himself did not found the church in Tyre, but he was eager to connect with apparently other believers and disciples in that area. And interestingly enough, while Paul didn't plant the church in Tyre on his earlier missionary journeys, he may have been indirectly responsible for the church that existed there. You see, according to Acts eleven nineteen, Christians were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen and his martyrdom. And as you well remember, those who stoned Stephen in Acts 7, when they stoned him to death, they laid their garments at the feet of a young man named Saul. And so after Saul was responsible for the martyrdom of Stephen, again, Acts eleven nineteen talks about how Christians scattered all over and many of these Christians landed in this area of Tyre. And so the dispersion of Christians because of this persecution led to this very area where Paul is now staying for seven days. And so it's interesting that, that coming full circle, Paul, some 20 years later, is now conversing with the believers there. And notice how in verse four, the Christians in Tyre seem to quickly attach their love to the apostle. Even though they knew maybe a little bit about his history, they knew now in his presence over seven days, his love for Christ, his love for people, his desire to preach the gospel and to shepherd the flock. And so it was in, in desire for the fear they had for his safety that verse four says they kept telling Paul through the spirit not to set foot in Jerusalem. And so the question now arises, is he supposed to go to Jerusalem or not? Because verse four says that it was through the spirit that they're encouraging him not to go on to Jerusalem. And so again, the question is whether Paul received a direct command from the spirit, which he disobeyed. Because if you read through Acts, he does go to Jerusalem. And that's part of what this text is saying. So we're asking the question, does Paul disobey by continuing to go to Jerusalem? Since again, verse four says that through the spirit, we were telling Paul, they were telling Paul not to go on to Jerusalem. Well, let's try to answer that question. That's an important question, right? So some argue that Paul, in his passionate concern for the poor and for the unity of the church, was actually disobedient to the Holy Spirit in going on to Jerusalem. I mean, after all, the Bible does give candid revelations of shortcomings of many men of God. The scripture presents failings as well as triumphs of men such as Noah and Abraham and Jacob and David, Peter, John. Uh, we, we know the rest of the apostles weren't perfect either. And so Paul was no more immune to failure than they were. In fact, one such example of a, of a failure of Paul might be the sharp disagreement where he quarreled with Barnabas over John Mark. And it's okay to have a disagreement, but when we were in that text, we discussed it was such a sharp disagreement that there seemed to be some, a little bit of, a, of, a, of, a, of an edge in, in rubbing each other in the wrong direction, and later they, they were reconciled from that. And so, uh, so some would say, well, Paul wasn't perfect. Um, certainly, he shouldn't have gone to Jerusalem. He's getting a little cavalier, a little prideful to just 
finish the course he had set in his mind, and this couldn't have been of the Holy Spirit. However, I believe that Paul was not disobeying the Spirit in this matter, and let me give you a few reasons why not. First, the phrase, through the Spirit, there in verse 4, is inconclusive. It merely means someone spoke as from a spiritual gift or a prophecy. As Paul notes in 1 Corinthians 14, 29, that there were to be at least two or three prophets that would often speak, and then they were to test what was being said. Whether this prophecy was of the Holy Spirit needed to be determined by other factors. So in other words, even if this was said, they would need to take what was said and compare it with everything else that we read in Scripture before they make a determination on this one scenario. Second, Paul lived a life that was sensitive to the Spirit's leading. I mean, he was a godly man. And when forbidden earlier by the Spirit not to preach in certain regions, Paul obeyed. You might remember Acts 16, 6 and 7, which says, and when through this region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been forbidden by the Holy Spirit to speak the word in Asia, and when they had come up to my Asia, they attempted to go into Bithynia, but the Spirit of Jesus did not allow them. So we see other instances where the Spirit forbid Paul, or the Spirit of Jesus in another account, again, Acts 16, 6 and 7, forbid Paul from going to a certain area, and so he didn't go. And then shortly thereafter, Paul was led by the Spirit to minister in Macedonia when he saw the vision of the man from Macedonia, and he goes into Philippi. And so Paul followed the Spirit's leading all along these previous missionary journeys. And so this kind of pattern of obedience makes it unlikely that he's disobedient here at the end of his third missionary journey in Acts 21. Third, the Holy Spirit has never before prohibited Paul from going to Jerusalem. It's never prohibited Paul directly until this one verse, and we're trying to discern what's going on here. In fact, look back with me, if you will, at chapter 20, verses 22 to 23. Acts 20, 22 to 23, here we see the Holy Spirit warned Paul repeatedly of what would happen to him when he got there, but it never told him not to go. Acts 20, 22 through 23, and now I behold, I am going to Jerusalem constrained by the Spirit. That doesn't mean prevented, but it means to be bound by the Spirit. So Paul is announcing to these Ephesian elders, I am going, I am bound by the Spirit, it's inferred to do so, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. So if you were to read Acts 20, 22 to 23, you would see that it's fairly clear that the Holy Spirit had indeed called Paul to go to Jerusalem and had already made it clear multiple times that there would be imprisonment and afflictions to await. Another reason would be in Acts 20, 24, you can just stay there in your next verse, it talks about how Paul describes his mission uh, to Jerusalem as the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. You see that there in 2024, it's the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus. And so how could the Holy Spirit, now in chapter 21, through some lesser known prophets in Tyre, all of a sudden forbid Paul from doing what the Lord Jesus Christ had commanded him to do? Also in Acts 19:21, it says that Paul purposed in the Spirit to go to Jerusalem. Look at that verse, Acts 19:21. Again, it says that Paul purposed, he resolved, in the spirit 
to pass through Macedonia and Achaia and to go to Jerusalem. So it's pretty clear here that, that Paul has declaring that, that I have lived my life with a, a perfect and a good conscience. This is part of Paul's goal. Look at Acts 23. So we're saying that if, if Paul somehow sinned by now in Acts 21.4, disobeying the, 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 the prophecy not to go, or what, what seemed to be a prophecy not to go, then how could he in chapter 23, verse 1, say, and looking intently at the council, Paul said, brothers, I have lived my life before God in all good conscience up to this day. So he did arrive in Jerusalem, and he's saying, I did so with a clear conscience. And if Paul, that was important for Paul. With all, with all of this in mind, it would seem very difficult to see how he could say that he had followed God with a clear conscience if he had just flat out sinned by disobeying the Holy Spirit. And so what's the explanation of why verse four, back to our text, 21.4, what's the explanation of this? Well, I would say that it's something like the saints entire, as in other places, that the Holy Spirit was really warning Paul of the upcoming persecution and, and the facing of, the, of, the, uh, uh, of being bound that he would face in Jerusalem, that the believers entire through the Spirit foresaw the suffering that he would endure when he reached Jerusalem. And so it was maybe only natural that they would try to dissuade him from going to Jerusalem. Therefore, I would see that the Spirit's message to Paul and Tyre is more of a warning, not a prohibition. And we'll see more of this even in this sermon in verse 11 when we talk about Agabus's prophecy. And so for now, let me just say, I believe that we should actually admire Paul's decision. It was a difficult decision, but such is the cost of following Jesus. And we can understand dissenting voices. These people loved Paul and they were well-intended. And when they considered the inevitable suffering that awaited him, they naturally urged him to choose a different path. And sometimes we have to go against the grain. And sometimes we have to go against common sense. And sometimes we have to choose the hard path because it is often the harder path that leads to the greater reward. Look at verses five and six. So what happened was Paul got on board while the others returned home. He got on board the ship that's gonna now sail from Tyre to Caesarea while the others returned home. Verses five and six, when our days there were ended, seven days in Tyre, we departed and went on our journey and they all with wives and children accompanied us until we were outside the city and kneeling down on the beach, we prayed and said farewell to one another. Then we went on board the ship and they returned home. So again, after a week of interaction with the saints in Tyre, it was now time for Paul and his group to leave. And so when their days ended and the ship was finished unloading its cargo and ready to sail, they departed and continued their journey towards Jerusalem. So devoted had the Christians at Tyre become to them that they all, together with their wives and their children, verse five, escorted Paul all the way to the ship and there they prayed on the beach together. They knelt down and prayed together as if, well, if you are gonna go, at least go with our prayers, at least go with our encouragement. Let us pray over you as we now send you out and after their final farewells to one another, again, verse six says that the party boarded the ship while the believers from Tyre headed home. 
Now, something about that just kind of struck me a little bit as I was studying this week. You know, they're encouraging Paul not to go. There's going to be danger. Paul says, hey, thank you very much, but I've got to go. I believe I've been constrained by the Spirit all along to go to Jerusalem. And so Paul gets on the ship, and he's going to go to Jerusalem, and everybody else went home. Again, some are called to continue on the mission, and maybe others choose to stay home. Now, I get it. Those disciples from Tyre didn't have the same calling that Paul did, but there's something about the picture of getting on the boat and continuing the mission in the midst of danger and journey, uh, of the dangerous journey, or just heading back home, a place of familiarity and comfort. I don't know about you, but I hope that I would be the kind of Christian that would say, you know what, I got to get on the boat. I got to be where it is that God's calling me. And I want to learn to follow God even when it's tough. And even when others may be discouraging me, and even when I know that it might lead to heartache and to difficulty, but there's no better place on earth than to be in the presence of God. And there's no better place on earth to be in the purpose of God. And there's no better place to be than living on mission for God. And some want to keep going while others will want to go home. Neither the threat of persecution nor the pleadings of well-meaning fellow believers could divert Paul from fulfilling his calling. He retained the courage of his conviction despite the repeated warnings of severe persecution ahead. And nothing could dissuade him from carrying out the task of the Lord Jesus Christ and what had been assigned to him. And Jesus calls us all as followers of Christ to do the same. Luke 9, 23, Jesus says, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. This is the call of being a disciple, to follow Christ no matter what. Doesn't ultimately matter what your mom and dad say, say, say right, ultimately. And again, I'm not talking to young children here. I'm talking to college-age students, young adults, who maybe God's called you to, to, to sprout your wings or grow your wings and to, to be shot out like arrows to go where you go. And a, and a loving mom and dad would often say, hey, are you sure you want to do that? Are you sure you want to risk your life for the gospel? And you think about, you know what, what a beautiful thing that Paul's doing here is just saying, you know what, I'm willing to both be uh, arrested and even to die. That's what we're getting to in our text. And so we see this courage to keep going no matter what. Now that we've seen that kind of courage to keep going, let's look at this second major heading, courage to be imprisoned and to die. And your next blank talks about being reacquainted. Your blank there again, reacquainted with Philip. Being reacquainted with Philip, verses seven to nine. When they finished the voyage from Tyre, we arrived at Ptolemus and we greeted the brothers and stayed with them for one day. On the next day, we departed and came to Caesarea and we entered the house of Philip, the evangelist who was one of the seven and stayed with him. He had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. Ptolemus was about 25 miles south of Tyre. As he had in Tyre, Paul immediately sought out the believers and spent one day in Ptolemus encouraging them. And just like that about Paul, wherever he's at, he's at, he's just there one day, he's seeking the believers, let's gather together, let's get in God's word, in God's prayer, let's fellowship together, is what we're assuming took place in that one day, and, and Paul would do that time and time again, and now he's moving on, and he's going to go to Caesarea. 
He's going to go to Caesarea on the next day. After a 40-mile voyage, they arrived in Caesarea, uh, which is on the coast of Israel. Right? It's on the west coast there of the Mediterranean Sea. It was a city that was uh, built in, in homage to Caesar. And so there was the Roman government of Judea was housed there in Caesarea with its official residence of the governor's quarters, most notably Pilate. You know, they would come into Jerusalem when they needed to delineate something, but they would live in Caesarea because it's a quick, easy voyage back and forth to Rome from the coast. And so it served now as the home of Philip. Now, we, we know about Philip, the evangelist, the verse says, who was the, one of the seven men chosen to serve as a deacon back in Acts 6. Maybe you remember that account when there was some disagreement about waiting on tables and whether the Hebrew women or the Hellenists, the Greek women, were getting their proper share. And so the elders at that point decided to appoint seven men. The first was Stephen, the second was Philip, and then five other men that they appointed to do the work of serving as deacons. And so Philip was one of those seven. But not only was Philip just a great servant of caring for the widows there in Jerusalem, but he also went out. And he went out to preach the gospel. And he preached the gospel in Samaria. It was Philip who evangelized the Ethiopian eunuch. And so he was given this title, Philip the Evangelist, a title given to no one else in the Bible. We read about the gift of evangelism. And Paul told Timothy to do the work of an evangelist. But no one else was given this special designation, Philip the Evangelist who now for about 20 years has been continuing to evangelize and he's in a good city to do so there again in Caesarea since it was filled with a lot of Greeks as well as Jews and Philip was preaching the gospel. And they are now, uh, they are, they're now coming back together, Philip and Paul, to be fellow preachers of salvation. And so the chief of sinners, because earlier in Philip's life again, Paul killed, you know, Stephen, or he was responsible. That, that persecution caused Philip to go to Samaria to evangelize the Ethiopian eunuch and then be in Caesarea. So these two that were arch enemies have now become friends. The chief of sinners and the most fierce persecutor of the church, Saul, was now invited into Philip's house, and he and his companions stayed with him. It's amazing to see that after many years, it was the ministry of the gospel that brought these two together. And in Philip's house, we're told there in verse 9, he had four unmarried daughters who prophesied. And so Philip's house included these four virgin daughters who prophesied, and the emphasis uh, is on the fact that they were unmarried. It could be unmarried, it could be translated as virgins, but that, that emphasis there may be also demonstrating that these four daughters were set aside for a special ministry. I mean, the gift of prophecy was a special gift in the early church. And while the apostles were given more of the doctrinal revelation, which is indeed foundational to the church, the message of prophets and prophetesses was often more personal and more practical. There are no more details regarding Philip's daughter's prophetic ministry. It is, it is you know, and therefore impossible to know how often they prophesied or even if they did so more than once. In fact, even what they prophesied about is not recorded in scripture. And the Bible is clear, just to bring a little clarity, that it does not permit a woman to the role of elder or teaching the Bible over men in the church. 
Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians chapter 14, 33 through 35. So we're saying a woman can be a prophetess, but she's not to teach or exercise authority over a man. Two cross-references to look at. The first is 1 Corinthians 14, 33 through 35. For God is not a God of confusion, but of peace. All, uh, excuse me, as in all the churches of the saints, the women should keep silent in the churches. So that doesn't literally mean you can't speak when you walk into a church. It just means you're not going to be an upfront teacher of the Bible in the church. The women should keep silent in the churches for they are not permitted to speak, but should be in submission as the law also says. If there is anything they desire to learn, let them ask their husbands at home for it is shameful for a woman to speak in church. Now, I just wanted you to read that because our culture tells us something different, right? If you're just like watching mainstream evangelicalism, you have women pastors, women teachers, and we would say, of course a woman can teach women and children. But according to this passage, and I just wanted you to read it for yourselves because the church is constantly like, well, maybe it's okay. Well, maybe it's okay. And we keep getting pulled on so many issues. And so hold on a second. What does the word say? What does the scripture say? It says it's shameful for a woman to teach, and the idea here is the Bible in a formal church context where there's men involved. Turn with me, if you will, to 1 Timothy, another cross-reference. This one says it maybe even more clearly, but second, excuse me, 1 Timothy chapter 2, 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12. It says in 1 Timothy 2, 11 through 12, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness, I do not permit a woman to teach or exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet. So again, we're simply talking about the scripture's teaching, I believe, in the context of church eldership and preaching and teaching the Bible in a formal context. It doesn't mean that a woman can't teach. If we were to look at Titus 2, again, a woman should be teaching women and children. And so that is not a that is not a secondary role or an inferior role. It's just a, just a different role. We would say that God created men and women equal before God in our value and our dignity, but we have different roles and responsibilities both at church and at home. And at the same time, we see Philip's daughters prophesying. So sometimes a, a person will see that and be like, well, see there, they prophesied, so that, that rule no longer exists. And I'm saying, yes, they did prophesy. And I would have loved to hear heard what Philip's daughter said. Like, I would love to hear anybody prophesying uh, truth in any context in the first century. But in light of these passages, I think that it's important that we understand the biblical balance of understanding that just because Philip's daughters, back to Acts 21 here, uh, are prophesying, doesn't mean they had free reign to just kind of somehow take over the church in any way. And it's also possible that, that they spoke instructively and individually rather than to congregations as a whole. And this also is not the first time we've seen a woman prophetess in the Bible. Other prophetesses are mentioned in the Bible specifically by name, like Miriam in Exodus chapter 15, verse 20, Deborah in Judges 4, verse 4, Huldah, 2 Kings twenty-two fourteen, the wife of Isaiah, Isaiah 8, verse 3, and of course, Anna, the prophetess there at the temple in Luke 2, 36. And so on the day of Pentecost, we even read 
turn to uh, Acts 2. We even read this in Acts 2.17 on the day of Pentecost where Peter is quoting from Joel 2 and he says in Acts 2.17, and in these last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy and your men shall see visions and your old men shall dream dreams even my male servants and female servants. In those days, I will pour out my spirit and they shall prophesy. So Adam, what what are you saying? I'm just saying, don't be afraid to see where it says in the text that Philip's daughters prophesied. That should be a welcome gift to the church and it can be encouragingly used in the appropriate way. The question is not, did women prophesy in the Bible? It's, did they prophesy in the right context and in the right way? And if they did, all glory be to God. Now let's move on, if I can, to verses 10 through 12, where we next see Paul being cautioned, your next blank, being cautioned by Agabus. He's being cautioned in verses 10 through 12. While we were staying for many days, a prophet named Agabus came down from Judea and coming to us, he took Paul's belt and bound his own feet and hands and said, thus says the Holy Spirit, this is how the Jews at Jerusalem will bind the man who owns this belt and deliver him to the hands of the Gentiles. When we heard this, we and the people there urged him not to go up to Jerusalem. So again, after Paul left that city where he's there for one day. He then heads to Caesarea where he's there and now he receives this, you know, meets Philip, stays in his house and now he's hearing from this prophet Agabus which had come from Judea. We had seen Agabus one other time earlier in Acts in chapter 11 verse 28 where Agabus at that time gave a prophecy about a great famine. Now he comes back into the picture, chapter 21, and the prophecy this time was a graphic picture of Paul's upcoming arrest and being bound with chains. And this dramatic enactment was somewhat reminiscent of Old Testament prophets that would sometimes act out their own prophecies. And so Agabus's dramatic actions uh, and his words serve as a warning to Paul of what awaited him in Jerusalem and it would prove to be a test of his courage. But please note that this prophecy does not forbid Paul from going to Jerusalem. In fact, I would say it does just the opposite. It says that the man who has this belt will be bound in Jerusalem. So I would say that it actually is confirming that Paul indeed will go to Jerusalem, and while he is there, he will be arrested. And so this is another argument again of why I'm saying that the Holy Spirit never did forbid Paul from going to Jerusalem. It just simply, the Holy Spirit simply announced multiple times that when he got there, he would face imprisonment and maybe even death. And so what's going on here in Caesarea is just like in Tyre, the believers here urged Paul not to go. So they made the assumption, oh, the Holy Spirit says you're going to be arrested and you could face a great uh, you know, imprisonment and afflictions, so, so that means you shouldn't go. But the Holy Spirit actually never said you shouldn't go. In fact, Paul was convinced, as we've reflected on all these passages all along, that he was going to go. And so what we see here next in verses 13 and 14 is that Paul is going to be obedient to the Lord Jesus. He's going to be obedient to the Lord Jesus, verse 13 and 14. Then Paul answered, what are you doing? Weeping and breaking my heart, for I am ready not only to be in prison, but even to die in Jerusalem for the name of the Lord Jesus. 
And since he would not be persuaded, we ceased and said, let the will of the Lord be done. And so Paul's response to these prophecies, first in Tyre and now here in Caesarea, one from an unknown source, another from a better known source in Agabus, but Paul's response is now reflecting his willingness, his willingness to pay any price in order to be obedient to the calling that God had placed on this life. And so Paul makes it abundantly clear that he's, not, uh, he's willing not only to be in prison, but even to die for the Lord Jesus and so Paul says something similar in Romans 8.36, as it is written, for your sake we're being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. In 2 Corinthians 4.16, Paul says, so we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. In Philippians 2.17, Paul writes, even if I'm to be poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrificial offering of your faith, I am glad and rejoice with you all. And earlier in Acts 15.26, Luke writes about how there had been those men who had risked their lives for the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul simply would not be turned aside from his goal, even by the concerns of well-meaning friends. It is not difficult to see in this regard the parallels and the similarities even between Paul's journey to Jerusalem and that of Jesus Christ. You remember at the end of Jesus' ministry, Paul had three missionary journeys. Jesus uh, had a ministry that lasted a little bit over three years. And at the end, it's always about coming back to Jerusalem. And even as Jesus is heading back to Jerusalem prior to going to the cross, Jesus had told his disciples that he would be turned over to the Gentiles. And the same author of Acts also wrote Luke. And in Luke 18, 31, Luke wrote this, and taking the 12, Jesus said to them, see, we are going to Jerusalem, and everything that is written about the Son of Man by the prophets will be accomplished, for he will be delivered over to the Gentiles and will be mocked and shamefully treated and spit upon, and after flogging him, they will kill him, and on the third day, he will rise. So Jesus gave the prophecy of what would happen. How do you think the disciples responded to that? Well, at that point, Right? Peter even rebuked Christ and told him not to go. And you remember Jesus had to pull him aside and say what? You know, Satan has asked to sift you like wheat, but I, I have prayed for you. And then he's just basically, you know, get behind me, Satan. Because even Jesus will not be thwarted from the plan of going to Jerusalem. And praise God that he did. And in this text, Paul, in a similar way, is simply following in the Messiah's footsteps wherever that leads and we must be willing to do the same. May we say together with what the saints in Caesarea finally realized, let the will of the Lord be done. So they realized at this point, Paul's going no matter what, he's got a conviction, apparently the Holy Spirit has revealed to him more clearly than he's revealed to us what needs to happen, and may we have the same strength and the same conviction and the same courage that God would provide for us as we keep our eyes on him the whole way. And this leads us to verses 15 and 16 where we see that Paul is being willing to finish the mission. 
15 and 16, he's gonna finish the mission. After these days, we got ready and went up to Jerusalem and some of the disciples from Caesarea went with us, bringing us into the house of Nason of Cyprus, an early disciple with whom we should lodge. So again, unable to persuade Paul to stay home. Some of the disciples, I love this, in verses 15 and 16, some of the disciples decided to join Paul. And so they, they went with him in this final leg from Caesarea to Jerusalem. And along the way, they stopped at the house of Nason to lodge there. He was apparently an early disciple from Cyprus where Paul had begun his first missionary journey. Instead of letting the Christians' fears from Tyre and Caesarea affect Paul, Paul's courage affected them. They knew that he was a marked man in Jerusalem, facing hatred, imprisonment, and maybe even death. They also knew that by identifying with him, they were putting their own lives at risk as well. But they were willing, some were willing to say, hey, we're gonna go with you. If you're gonna do this, we're going with you. We're, we're going to accept this risk because you're willing to accept the risk. And your courage and your strength is now rubbing off on us because it was contagious. Again, Paul wasn't someone who just talked about things. He was someone who acted in obedience. Martin Luther wasn't someone who just talked about reform. He showed reform in his willingness to die for the sake of the gospel. We know Paul was one who would finish his course as he wrote to Timothy in 2 Timothy 4, 7 through 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but to all who have loved his appearing. On this text, Charles Swindoll writes, as on every occasion when Paul suffered, the Lord would use this situation to accomplish his plan. In fact, Luke's narrative demonstrates that every circumstance from the ascension of Christ to the imprisonment of Paul in Rome had unfolded according to God's design. You see, it was God's design for him to go to Jerusalem. It was God's design for him to preach the gospel. It was God's design for him to be arrested. It was God's design for him then in chains to write more of the New Testament and eventually to head to Rome. And so now that we've seen the courage to keep going, the, the courage to be in prison and even to die, I wanted to take a moment and share with you by application number three, courage to apply the lessons learned. The Lord bids us to come and follow him. We are to follow him regardless of the cost. We are to follow him in the power of the spirit. And so let us consider five lessons of what it means to count the cost to follow Jesus. A, love people, but love Jesus more. Paul clearly loved people in general. We see that throughout his travels. He's connecting with people and pleading with them and praying and crying together. He, he, he loved his Christian brothers very much. And yet Paul treasured Jesus more than anyone. And the same should be true of us. It was Jesus who said in Matthew 10, 37, whoever loves father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And so we must resist the urge to be people pleasers. We need to be able to obey, like what Paul said, I'm ready to die for the name of the Lord Jesus. No one or no thing is more valuable than Jesus Christ, and we're ultimately accountable to him. 
And so let us treasure Jesus supremely. We don't want to be people pleasers. We want to be Jesus pleasers. B, value input, but follow God's will. Paul listened to the counsel of others. The book of Proverbs teaches the value of such heeding of godly counsel, like in Proverbs 15, 22, without counsel, plans fail, but with many advisors, they succeed. Proverbs 20, 18, plans are established by counsel, by wise guidance, wage war. And so in general, we wanna say, refusing to allow other Christians to speak into your lives is foolish, but at the same time, there may be occasions when following Jesus might make you look foolish. Missionary history is filled with the accounts of missionaries who left people and possessions for dangerous places, even though friends and family urged them to choose different paths. And many condemned the missionary endeavors of people like Jim Elliott and David Livingston and William Carey and Adoniram Judson and C.T. Studd and John G. Patton. Let me just give you a quick synopsis of each one. Jim Elliott, as you know, decided to give his life to serve the Aka Indians in Ecuador and even people around him thought that he was too gifted to consider such a thing. And so here's what Jim Elliott said as people were pleading with him not to go because you're too gifted, they said. Jim Elliott said, consider a call from the throne above. I dare not stay home while these Indians perish so what if the well-fed church in the homeland needs a stirring? They have the scriptures, Moses and the prophets, and a whole lot more. Their condemnation is written on their bank books and on the dust of their Bible covers. American believers had so, have sold their lives to the service of mammon and God in his rightful way of dealing with those who succumb to the spirit of Laodicea. That was his answer to people who said, I don't think you should go. You wanna risk your life? He's like, wake up! So Elliot and four others gave their lives for the Aka Indians. Or how about David Livingston, who went into the heart of Africa, and he wrote a letter to the London Missionary Society. It says this, so powerfully convinced am I that it is the will of God that I should go to Africa, that I will go no matter who opposes me. Later, after countless afflictions, he still wouldn't return home, even though others tried to persuade him to do so. But Livingston declared, God has called me to Africa, and I am staying here. William Carey, known as the father of modern missions, rose up in Europe and said to a group of ministers, I am going to India to make the gospel known there. A minister in the audience rebuked him and he said, sit down young man, you're an enthusiast. When God pleases to convert the heathen in India, he will do it without consulting you or me. But Kerry would not be persuaded and off to India he went. Adoniram Judson, a Baptist missionary who had a desire to go to Burma, which is present day Myanmar, Myanmar, however you say it. It's known as a closed country, a very dangerous place there in Myanmar. So Judson was called there by God, he felt, to go to this area. And so against the pleas of others, Judson and his wife went into the heart of Burma. And he labored for 38 years, suffering through cholera, malaria, dysentery, and unknown miseries. 
that would claim the lives of his first wife and his second wife, as well as seven of his 13 children and numerous colleagues. And as a result of his resolve today, there are close to 4,000 Baptist churches in the middle of Buddhist Burma. Over a half a million believers are represented in those congregations. C.T. Studd, a wealthy Englishman, came to faith in Christ and soon after sensed God's call to go to China. His family brought a Christian worker to dissuade him. Studd said, let's ask God then. I don't want to be a pig-headed and go out there on my own accord. I just want to do God's will. And so he sought God's will and decided that he should indeed go. Then later, when he was 50 years old, he resolved that he should spend the rest of his life in Sudan, when others again urged him to do otherwise. In the next 20 years, he founded the Worldwide Evangelization Crusade through his work in Africa, which has planted gospel seeds all over Africa, Asia, and South America. John G. Patton served for 10 years as a pastor in Glasgow, Scotland. But God began to burden his heart for New Hebrides. These were Pacific islands filled with cannibalistic peoples with no knowledge of the gospel. 20 years earlier, two missionaries had been cannibalized there. Patton received opposition from everywhere. The church where he served offered him more money to stay. When one older man protested, Patton famously said, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live and die serving and honoring the Lord Jesus, it will make no difference to me whether I am eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in the great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. Patton wouldn't be persuaded, and soon he would be putting the Lord's Supper elements into the hands of formal, former cannibals who had repented and trusted in Jesus. I'm just saying all of this shows that costly obedience sets an inspiring example for a host of future missionaries to consider. Consider the costs. Consider the risk, but consider the reward of seeing others come to know Christ because of your labor in the Lord, which is never in vain. So value the input from others, but follow God's will for your life. Another lesson would be the only thing that is worse than dying is not living. The only thing worse than dying is not living. Life is short. Don't waste it. Pour yourself out for the good news and then you will actually find a life worth living. Jesus said in Mark 8, 35 and 36, for whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? This may involve risk and hardship, but it's worth it. Let's say together with Paul in Acts 20, 24, if only I may finish my course in ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul says, I don't account my life of any value or as precious to myself. A fourth lesson would be when you follow Jesus down the Via Dolorosa, 
you're not alone and you won't regret it. When you follow him down the Via Dolorosa, the way of suffering, right? Jesus, our unfailing friend, is with us even as we make disciples of all nations and even through suffering, it may be inevitable, but following Jesus is worth it. This life is not the end. The best is yet to come. Paul wrote of such in Philippians 1.21 where he says, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. John Piper commented on Acts 20, 24. He said, Lord, keep me faithful to the job, then let me drop and go to my reward. And I can tell you this, when, when we see Christ, we will not regret having followed him. A fifth lesson that we can learn is this, following Jesus is costly, but not following Jesus is more costly. I can see how an unbeliever could look at Paul's life or any of those missionaries I mentioned, even Jesus's for that matter, and say, what a waste. But scripture gives us a different view. Jesus said these words to his disciples about the disastrous result of pursuing material gain instead of pursuing him. In that same passage that we've looked at in Mark 8, where it says, what can a man profit? It says, what does a man profit to gain the whole world and yet forfeit his soul? What can a man give in return for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation of him, will the son of man be also ashamed when he comes in the glory of his father with the holy angels? Just simply saying the only thing more costly than discipleship is the cost of none discipleship. Follow Jesus now and you will experience unspeakable joy later. Unfollow Jesus now and you will have hell to pay. He bids us to come and to follow him. Let's surrender to this call and to his lordship over our lives. As the take-home section says, do you have the courage to keep going even if well-intended friends and family encourage you otherwise? Do you have the courage, number two, to be imprisoned and even to die for the sake of Christ? Third application point, do you understand that no matter the cost of following Jesus, you will never regret it? You'll never regret it. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Christ, I would bid that you would come to him and that you would offer your life, meaning that you would lay down your life, all that you are, all that you've ever stood for, believed in, you would lay it down at the cross, that you would turn from your own self and your own, your own comfort and your own beliefs and other truths or other, I should say, religions outside of scripture, and that you would realize today God's calling you in a relationship with him. And so after we sing our last song, we'll have a few people over here that would love to pray with you, to encourage you how you could repent, trust in the Lord Jesus. If you're here today, we have a lot of young people here, right? I hope that you're hearing the call that God might be placing on your life, that you wouldn't buy just the American dream or only listen to those who would say, stay safe, find comfort, get a good job. That's, that's good counsel, but it's maybe not as good as give your life, go overseas, Pursue the calling God's placed on your life to share with others who are perishing about the beauty and the joy of knowing and living a life for the Lord Jesus Christ. I hope that you'll consider that even today as we consider what we've studied together this morning, ready to be imprisoned and to die for the sake of Christ. Let's pray together. Father, thank you.
for this morning. Thank you for the opportunity just to be challenged again by the scripture, the life of Paul, the reality that there were some who urged him not to go, even begged him not to go, just to understand how difficult that might have been even in those contexts to to, to still go forward, and yet there was some type or some kind of deeper conviction, greater clarity that the Holy Spirit had given to Paul multiple times throughout his journeys that he would indeed go, that he would be imprisoned and be bound, and yet Paul decided to go. How can I not go for the sake of Christ to offer my life? And I pray that we would be challenged by that kind of courage, that kind of commitment. And I pray that whatever that looks like for us, I know not all of us literally will go overseas to an unreached people group, but maybe that means taking that same courage to stand up to a teacher, to a coworker, to a boss, and say, you know, I can't do that. I have a higher calling to obey and to live and to serve my master, Jesus Christ. Help us to be unashamed in our witness and our testimony to friends who may scoff or mock at our moral decisions, our desire to honor Christ over fleshly pursuits, Help us to just have courage in the midst of a political environment that's run amok. Help us to say, you know what, I don't think that's the way that would best promote human flourishing. It would be knowing Christ and living for him. And knowing Christ and living for him looks like this. Looks like a, a lifestyle that scripture describes. Not that your morality would save you, but faith in Christ would bring about saving grace and then living for Christ would promote a life that would be filled with an aroma that would be pleasing to you and it would be promoting a clear conscience and a, an incredible testimony of the goodness of our Savior, Jesus Christ. And so I pray that you'd help us to consider all of these things seriously, soberly, and that you would stir our hearts this morning as we discuss these things around our tables and around our small group settings and in the fellowship of one another, that we would encourage and challenge one another to be obedient to the call, whatever that may be. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.